Welcome to Stories, a special bonus edition with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw, and that would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. When I heard about this article that was being written about Pat Patterson, the WWE Hall of Famer, first intercontinental champion, it was hard to believe that the government, the United States government in the 1960s was trying to deport Pat Patterson for being a homosexual. It's insane that a government that is supposed to be protecting you, you are living in fear of, which is exactly what happened to Pat Patterson. But thanks to this author and this reporter, the news has come to light through the Freedom of Information Act. David uh, Bixenspan, join us, the host of Between the Sheets podcast and an article for Mail Magazine, writes about an incredible article about this entire saga with Pat Patterson. David, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. How did you find out uh, any of this information about Pat? And we'll get into a little bit about Jerry knew some of this because Pat would say, guys are watching me. I'm not sure if anybody really believed that. How did you find out the information about the government going after Pat? So I've over the last several years gotten into, you know, filing Freedom of Information Act requests or like state or local level public record requests for all sorts of different things. And um one of the things I had started to do from time to time, I should probably do it more than I do, is I'll file a request with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services for what they call the alien file of a wrestler who you know, was a foreign national who had worked in the U.S. who had passed away. Because you, they tend to have kind of interesting historical information. You'll have, you know, tax and pay records. Like, for example, like, you know, when I got Chris Adams' file, I'm able to see that, you know, in Dallas in 1984, he made, you know, 80 grand, you know, just working for Fritz and, you know, which is, you know, like 200 grand today. And you can use that to show this is how much wrestlers were making if they were a headliner in a given territory or, you know, you'll have the reference letters that promoters and other people have to send because the way that the wrestling work visa process is, because wrestling is so unique, it's it's it it it's not going to make sense to everyone. But it's like if you have held titles of note, they consider that like they know it's a work, but they take stuff like that into account. So there's all sorts of stuff you can find, you know. Even sometimes it's just fun to see like someone you know someone stationary or their letterhead from whatever territory office or whatever. So you know, I did that over the winter some point, I forget exactly when after Pat had passed away, not really sure what to expect. And I get it. And it's like 200 pages. The second half is a mix of like his green card application from the seventies. And then his citizenship application from 2002. But the first half is all from the mid sixties when the INS now defunct, but then, you know, when it existed, it was part of the Department of Justice, the same way that the FBI and other agencies are. And they were trying to deport him for, quote unquote, homosexual activity, which was, I'm not sure if it was technically the official grounds. We'll go over that a little bit in the article with the professor that I talked to. But, you know, they had different things they would try to do. And, you know, we'll talk about some of what's in the article. At one point, it seemed like they tried to get get him to leave the country so he could apply for a green card 
only to get a psychiatric exam when he came back and stuff. So there's a lot of ways they did it. And it happened to a lot more people than just him, surely. But, I mean, we don't know the full extent. Uh, David, little... David, first of all, uh, I'd, I'd like mm -hmm. to really thank you for your time and uh, coming on here so on such short notice. I saw the article today, and I'd shared with John your first conversation. Uh, you called me shortly after Pat's death and uh, told me you were, you were writing, you stumbled upon this and wanted to know if I had any information. And I thought about it, thought about it. Then I, I, I just started having these flashbacks, little things Pat would say to me and, and different things that never really made any sense. But after you and I's conversation, I mean, it started to come into light. This is what he meant by that. But this was during a time, you know, when, when McCarthyism uh, was running wild with the actors and the communism and, and all that stuff. And was it just a general attitude of the government at that time to rid the United States of homophobia and things like that? Or was it particularly against Pat? Or did you find other cases where it is? And you brought up, and we'll get into it a little bit later, Pat had an involvement with a serviceman, being a, which I guess was a court martial offense back in those days. But, right. but, Thank you so much again. So just in general, I mean, and I think John maybe even might be able to expand on this. One of the things that I think maybe has been kind of lost with the Red Scare is that a lot of it was either being used to target people who they thought were gay or perceived as gay and calling them communists. And then there was a separate thing called the Lavender Scare, which I mentioned briefly in the article that was used to try to fire government employees who were gay or perceived as gay. But a lot of that was intertwined. Like, it's not the same thing, but, you know, George Gordienko, who was a, you know, rising star wrestler in the 50s, he was deported and had to spend the rest of his life as a, traveling around the world as a wrestler and artist because he could never get back into the U.S. because he had been in, like, one communist club in college or something. So it's all kind of part of the same whole, I guess is the best way to put it. And with Pat, yeah, it seems like there were two things. One was that he had this relationship with someone in the Air Force who I think may have been a wrestler. I have no idea who it was. But also that the, you know, at the time they had the public morals squad in police departments, including in Portland, and they were investigating I don't know if they were just trying to do stings on various gay people or investigate the local gay community or gay, any gay businesses or whatever, but Pat's name came up in that too. And you know, what the professor that I talked to told me is that generally, if it was using immigration actions, it's because their name came up somehow in something with law enforcement. Yeah, and Jerry, to put a little context on that, the, the lavender scare was uh, created. Uh, Senator Everett Dickinson, you had a de derogatory term for gay uh, young males uh, called la called them lavender lads. And that's where the term came from. And after that became uh, the executive order of 10450 from President Eisenhower that went after specifically gay people in the government. 5,000 people lost their jobs in, in the government during that mm -hmm. time. By the 1970s, there were 360,000 files, 432,000 people between the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare, the, the communists and homosexuals, which, by the way, the RNC chair, Gabriel, uh, 
George Gabrielson in 1950 said that gays may be worse than communists. That was wow. the feeling from the government and why they ended up with 360,000 files by the mid-1970s. It took over, over 100 cubic feet in the government. They used taxpayer money to go after people uh, like Pat. So it was a targeted effort by J. Edgar Hoover and all of his cronies, McCarthy and all those horrible guys, to go after what they called sexual deviants, which is what how they referred to homosexuality. Yeah. It was just an incredible time of a massive abuse uh, of power. Uh, David, the first thing you saw was April 14th, I think, 1965. That's when the government first, uh, they were investigating apparently the servicemen that Pat may or may not have had an affair with. The first thing the servicemen said he did, then later he said he didn't. He retracted it, it sounds like. But that's when the government wanted a uh, witness and testimony to go against Pat. Is that right? Once it got passed on to the, uh, well, to the like the local INS office, yeah. It was like once they got wind of it, I guess with the idea being that he's, you know, a locally based foreign national whose name came up in an investigation, then yeah, it got passed on to the Portland office of the INS. Got passed on to the Portland office, and then Pat ended up going in for an interview, right? Uh, was that when he went in for it, or was it down? He was working for Don Owens in Portland. Then he went down a month later down to uh, work for Roy Shire in uh, San Francisco. And when did he go in for the inter first interview? Because he got interviewed by the INS, right? Yes. So his interview was – oh, it, that no, that was in San Francisco. That was in May 65. And then you know, like the original – Give me one second, because I don't have this whole chronology. <laughs> it's because uh, there was it was because, well, the, the chronology of the article jumps around a little bit. So yeah. it was that it was more that it started in like late. Yeah, now I'm remembering again. It was like November 64. And then it doesn't come up until later in the file because they had to request it from the Air Force. And then they got this summary that goes over this. But, yeah, it's after about like. Yeah, about like seven, eight months is when they first interview him. So this was in uh, San Francisco when Pat had, when they went down to work with Roy, uh, I guess he was notified who, by the INS that Pat was under investigation and uh, and they proceeded from there. Or how, how did that transpire, you know? It's not clear to me if like they notified Shire or Don Owen of why they were investigating him. Um, like they knew, like they, there are letters of recommendation from them. They clearly knew they had to help with his visa at some point, but I, yeah, I, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it seems like there were people that knew he might have a visa issue, but not the reason. That's also you got to remember too, officially, a lot of this is them trying to use pretext reasons and stuff. They're not always going to outright be like, we're deporting you for being gay as the official reason necessarily, even if that's what they're saying in their internal memos. And uh, if Pat would have admitted to being uh, any type of homosexual activity, he'd have been deported, right? Because his testimony was that I'm not gay. There's no homosexual activity, right? But if he had admitted that, he would have been deported. Is that, is, is that correct? Probably. Like maybe they would have 
handled it if he admitted it as like a voluntary deportation type of thing. But yeah. And and you mentioned the one where they tried to trick him into going back to Canada and then he was going to take a psych uh, evaluation and they were going to work out a deal. Apparently the U S government, the Canadian government worked together and fail him on the psych uh, or else the U S embassy, maybe not the Canadian government fail him on the psych exam. So he was unfit to come back in the United States. Right. That's what it seems like they were trying to do. Yeah. Telling him that he could get his green card if he left briefly and came back as part of the application process. But that the idea would be to spring a psych exam on him with the idea being that they could classify him as, you know, sexual deviant or whatever, and then get him deported. So he was told to leave by, I think, January 10th, 1967. And around January 9th, it appears to show that he showed up in Montreal. But January 14th, just a few days later, he was at a match in Phoenix. Um, How did he get back in the country? Was it just a matter of him going back to the Canada? And then, and is my timeline right? Going back to Canada and then coming straight back? I mean, that's kind of what it appears to show, but it's very vague. Um, you know, there's some, it's kind of speculation parts of that. Like, I'm not really sure what to think of it because it doesn't really seem to match up with his wrestling schedule that at least we can find results for. So, you know, it's possible it's incomplete. It's possible there's a page missing and maybe it explains that the deportation got canceled or something. It, it's hard to say. How many times total did Pat end up getting interviewed by the government? Do you, do you know? I, I for It's either two or three. Well, it depends on what you count because there's the first interview, there's the hearing, and I think there might be one more. So I guess two. they had a hearing. I they had a hearing, David. Uh, Pat had to go to a hearing. I didn't know about that part. Yeah, that was yeah. No, that was yeah November '66, and you know he talked about he didn't want to go back to Canada. Made much more money in the U.S. than he could in Canada. He was making you know in '66 he was on track to make the equivalent of about two hundred six grand in 2021 money. And they were trying to get him on not submitting an itinerary that had him working in Portland, I think, because I think at this point his visa was through Shire or he said Shire handled all of his bookings and was booking him out. But in the end, it didn't even really matter because the type of visa he had, he didn't need to submit an itinerary anyway. (laughs) So they're just trying to make up something to throw him out of the country. Pretty much. I, this is insane wow. to me. And this uh, is a guy yeah, who comes yeah. to the country legally and is going to get thrown out by a, a government that's supposed to protect you. I mean, that this is beyond an abuse of power. It's amazing to me. I live in DC, live right by DC. They got, they got a building named after Jagger Hoover. And this is the things Jagger Hoover did. I mean, you know, he also went after you, you name it, the Orson Welles, uh, Charlie Chaplin, Lena Horne, the, the Beatles, Albert Einstein. Albert who Einstein. Jew, who was a Jew fleeing Nazism? <laughs> he thought he, was, <laughs> you know, he thought he was a communist. It's just insane this time that the government could could do something like this, and that a guy that we knew. And what's even a little crazier is Jerry. You're as close a friend with Pat uh, probably as anybody in the business. You Pat and uh, uh, Bruce, uh, he had a hearing where he almost got deported. 
he had at least one other interview with the government. Did you know about any of this? Well, that's the reason I asked David. He had a hearing. That's the reason I was shocked, you know, because Pat, Pat, I mean, Bruce, Pat, and I, and Jim Ross, we were all riding in the car. The countless miles and the countless nights that we, we spent together out on the highway. And we, we, we got pretty deep with Pat a few times. And, and, and like I said at the beginning of this, Pat would throw some key words out there without ever really saying anything. Because I used to, you know, I, David, you and I have talked about it, you know, when Pat made the big announcement on the Legends of the House, hey, guys, I'm gay. You know, like the reaction from the guys was like, okay, well, you, you're, Pat was the only one that didn't know he was gay. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true. And, uh, I, Jerry, Jerry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I, Pat, you know, I was a good friend with Pat. And I, I, at one point after Louis died, I tried to set him up with with this guy in New York, and it never did work out because of travel. You know, the guy was I a great guy. That. <laughs> That's right. He, he, Pat was only excited to meet him. Because, you know, but anyway, it just didn't, never did uh, work out. So then Pat calls me about his book or texts me or see him at rest, whatever it was. And he says, hey, I, I'm coming out. I said, well, what? And he goes, well, I'm gay. <laughs> 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 everybody knows yeah yeah no they don't <laughs> but but pal was just so had so much pride you know in himself that he just didn't want to want to want to come out and, and totally admit it you know until that night and i think uh the reason pat said that and the reason he was allowed to because it was such a relief for pat a release and he finally said it himself to the world because he was in denial the whole time because i used to get on him all the time but he, he, Pat loved to go on cruise ships, and he would seek a, seek a, his partner on, and they get separate cabins. I'd say, Come on, Pat, you're on a damn cruise <laughs> ship. <laughs> Who cares? You know? Well, if somebody might know me, you know, and I was so, so proud somebody knows, might know you. But uh, I used to just really get on him all the time. He said, I can't. One one time I asked him when he was here in, in Florida, David, uh, and I think I, I shared that story with you, you know. There was a, uh, a, a nightclub where, where, where the gays uh, uh, went uh, right down from the rising office, about three blocks from the rising office. And I asked Pat if he'd ever been there. He said, I can't go to places like that. I said, what do you mean you can't go to places like that, Pat? And he said, I just can't go. And so, you know, the more I ached on, I ached on. He said, I'm being watched and, 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 I, and I, I, I can't do it. And I said, who in the hell is who's watching you, Pat? He said, I can't tell you. So. You know, Pat was always pulling ribs on guys. So you just kind of just kind of just took it with a grain of salt and said, okay, you know, all right, somebody's watching you. But, you know, seeing all this stuff, seeing history kind of adds up two and two together. And uh, JR and, and Bruce and I, we'd, we'd have Pat so upset, you know, and uh, Pat in a card, he would never admit to us he was gay. He would never use that word. He said, I'm, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. He said, you guys don't use that word. We don't use that word. What are you, Pat? What are you? You know, yeah. He said, I'm sexual. <laughs> he said, that was the word he preferred to use and the word that uh, when a reference to his sexuality that we use the word sexual and not gay or, or queer or anything like that. But Pat was very strange like that. And all these little things, you know, David, thanks to your information, it, it just adds up now to why why this guy was, just tortured itself with 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 that forever until he was able to say it on on global wide TV on the Legends House there. 
Yeah. And, you know, to also tie in with what you said about his hesitance to go to gay bars and stuff. So I'm going to think about, you know, in the era and hold on, let me adjust. So that light is not doing that. Um, that may just be the problem right now. Okay. <laughs> There's a halo on it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that happened. Like I, I moved, my, moved over a little bit and now it's just, Looks like you got a sunlight shining on there. It's whatever. Okay. <laughs> oh, so it, so on top of, you know, that he would have had this happen with the INS, you know, in that era, you know, he or anyone else easily could have been arrested for going into a gay bar, you know? Like, that's the type of thing that happened back then. So it really, like, it really seems like it did, it gave a lot more context to things, you know, you had talked about with him and, you know, I was talking with, um, you know, Bertrand, who did his, you know, uh, memoir with him right. earlier. And he was telling me that, like, it also explained to him why Pat getting his citizenship in 2002 meant so much to him, too. Oh, yeah. That that was, like, yeah. officially, once uh, and for all, closing the book. Yeah, I was traveling with Pat during that course of time. He had sit there and we, we would study. I felt like I was ready to take that test, man, and, and pass this because Pat was so, so serious on taking that thing. And I mean, that was the biggest thing up to that point in his life that he had ever done with get the U.S. citizenship. And, you know, us as citizens, we kind of take it for granted. But to see somebody like Pat, you know, to me, I mean, he was Pat Patterson. <laughs> you know, he was he was a citizen of the world. I mean, he didn't need a, need a certificate to say he was, he was a citizen. But uh, it was important to Pat, and we, we studied, and I helped him study, and he'd ask me questions, and I'd, I'd ask him the questions uh, on the road. And, but he he was so dedicated to, to becoming a U.S. citizen. And he, always, he, would, he, would, he would even far off a few things there. He said there's a lot of circumstances besides this test. And I never understood any of that stuff he was saying. And now I do, you know. David, in your, in your looking into the Freedom of Information Act with Pat, I know you're probably looking just at Pat, but Pat's mentor, you had several other uh, gay wrestlers from the 60s, 70s, uh, you know, Ernie Roth, uh, Terry Garvin, uh, promoter Jim Barnett, you know, and, and they weren't, I don't, I don't guess you'd say they were openly gay, but everybody knew they were gay, you know, and yeah. Like Pat wrote in his book, you know, nobody, nobody really cared. You know, the wrestling business is very inclusive uh, in that way. Uh, did you find that the INS had gone after anybody else? Uh, or have you not gotten into the files of some of these other guys who were known to be gay during that time, but not as, I guess, as you would call openly gay? Um, at least as far as people, you know, who, you know, weren't American citizens, you know, who were, you know, foreign workers, trying to think if there's anyone else that would even be like, um, I guess, I guess the only other person I could think of that would make sense, like to jumps out immediately, which I can't remember if I did a request or not was, uh, would be Terry Garvin, I guess. But I think I, maybe I did do a request and they didn't have anything, which happens sometimes. I think they just lost files. Like, for example, I, I did one for Bruno San Martino a few years ago and they didn't have his file anymore. So <laughs> That that was a strange one. That was not one I was expecting to end that way. But no, I mean, I did. It was actually one of the first Freedom Information Act requests I ever did. I did one with the FBI for Jim Barnett years ago. And it took a long time to come back. 
And I'm thinking, you know, it's Hoover, FBI, he's friends with Rock Hudson, you know, who knows what's in there. It ended up just being from when Carter appointed him to the National Council on the Arts, just like his minimal FBI background check, which just basically consisted of them going to various like NWA member wrestling promoters who were just like, oh, Jim's great. <laughs> Did you find anything else of interest uh, other than about Pat or about the time, about the, the system, about uh, what Hoover and these guys were doing at the time? Uh, that you found um, I particularly mean, interesting? I mean, separately from this, something I've kind of made an on and off project over the years, I got to turn it into an article somewhere, is that I did, I mean, I did, I have a lot of stuff I did request on George Gordianko over the years. So I've gone through some of that. Like, there's records of, like, when they went through his mail and intercepting his mail and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, on the, you know, communism investigation side. And also, um, I refresh my memory on this. I tweeted a few years ago. I should retweet it later. Um, I have one of the like NWA like antitrust files, not the original stuff, but from when they went back to investigating them in like 1960. And there's like randomly a reference to like to Vladek Zabisco being a communist and stuff. Like, <laughs> um, David, back back in the in the mid 60s, when my brother and I first got into business, he got in in 65, I believe it was maybe 66, and, uh, and I'm about 68. But uh, there was, you know, guys would pass through. Uh, we had the, the old territorial days, of course, mm-hmm. where guys would, you know, six weeks in this territory and they'd take off. We, we'd, we'd have a few guys come through, and the story was, he's a communist. You know, be careful what you say to him. Uh, he's being watched. And, you know, I'm not right fresh out of college, and I'm believing all that crap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, I, you know, of course, I'd stay away from, from, from the guys. I, I got to do a couple of more Canadian guys and, and a, lot of, a couple of more Americans. But that was talked about, the communism part of it, you know, the, the political beliefs. But all during that time, and I, I swear on a on stack, man, I, I I don't ever recall it back in the 60s or even 70s, except when when I first uh, uh, heard the name Pat Patterson. That was the first time, and, and I was in Australia, it had to be 71. That was the first time that I recall anybody in this business saying somebody else in this business was gay. And I'd been through, like I said, the communism stuff, anybody, any one of the guys being gay until I was in Australia and it come my time to leave. And I was sitting down talking with Jim Barnett about possible places in North Carolina, uh, Portland, and uh, San Francisco. And, uh, of course, I was I was friends with Mark Lewin and King Curtis, and I knew they'd been everywhere. So I thought we started, I talked about, hey, guys, I said, well, if you go to San Francisco, you have Pat Patterson. And they said, well, you know he's gay. Well, no, watch gay. <laughs> and so uh, that was the first time that I'd ever heard any of the guys talk openly about somebody being gay. And they, 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 and I, they said, well, you know, Jim Barnett's gay. And I, 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 and I, I did. But, um, yeah, that was the first time I ever heard that Pat Patterson being gay. And then the first time I met him, of course, was in Atlanta, Jordan, when he passed on one of those uh, titles to me down there. But, uh, you know, I just took Pat because I went out and worked with him. I had no, no no fear, no, no hope phobia or anything like that about working with Pat. We went out and we had a professional match and I, I fell in love with his work and everything. And, 
almost regretted not going to San Francisco and having the chance to work with somebody like that. But it was it was a uh, it was not a, a a talked about subject. But like I said, the political part of it uh, and then sixties, you know, the, the communism and all that that was openly talked about. But that sexual part wasn't a strange, strange, strange error that sixties seventies. But no one seemed to care, though, right, Jerry? I mean, you talk about Mad no, Dog Michonne, no. the famous story, you know, where he was yeah. chasing Louie down the sidewalk in his car, going to run over, going to run over him. And then when he finally got uh, Louie, Pat's uh, mate, uh, they became good friends. And he had yeah. a special seat for yeah. him. You know, Roy Shire was yeah. the same. You know, nobody, nobody really cared. Uh, yeah. it, it, cer- it certainly appeared. Right, Jerry? Yeah, 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 you're exactly right. Nobody cared. The only time I ever come across it, and I'm, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to share this story with you guys, was here in Florida. When uh, I, I took Pat Patterson's place, he was assistant booker with Johnny Valentine, which meant Johnny Valentine couldn't travel, and Pat was a worker, so Pat was on the road, and so Pat would Pat was the assistant booker that took all the finishes on the road for all the guys back here in Florida for Eddie Graham. So Pat worked himself into a program with Mike Graham. And Pat would wear all these fancy jackets around him. He had the, my favorite jacket I've ever seen in my life. And I even asked Pat for the jacket at one time, and he said somebody stole it from him. He had he had oranges on the back of said California oranges are sweeter than Florida oranges. It was a beautiful jacket, but it was just a reference, you know, that stuck out there to, to people. The fans knew Pat was gay, but Pat didn't know that. Didn't know well, that wait a second. I just realized something, though. If he's wearing what? that jacket. Okay, so wait, this is around. So this is after the plane crashed because he said that Valentine can't yeah. travel. So this yeah. is probably what, like 76, 77 or about? Right now, it was 76, 77, 78, maybe. Yeah. So but, was Pat wearing that jacket as a reference to the Anita Bryant thing? Yes, he was exactly. Wow, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about heat here in Florida. <laughs> so should I explain that one? I guess so. Oh, you'll get, go ahead, David. Uh, go ahead, people yeah, that yeah, don't yeah. understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, Anita Bryant, she was what? Like Who a, was an Okie, by the way, John? So. <laughs> <laughs> of course, she was. <laughs> she was what? She was like, I guess she was like a musician who had gotten a lot of publicity. She was a famous singer, famous singer, yes. yeah. And she had gotten publicity for becoming a born-again Christian, and she had taken on a very anti-gay platform. And the thing is, though, what really led to the controversy, and she she was speaking out, I think, specifically because it was when Florida was trying to pass one of those, like, gay people can't be teachers laws or something like that, and she was supporting it. But the thing was, she was the main spokesperson for Florida Orange Juice at the time. Correct. And so it led to boycotts <laughs> and stuff. I mean, the big famous image is someone, a protester, hitting her in the face with a pie. Yeah. But, like, that's kind of her lasting legacy these days. So, wow, that's that's something then, too. Yeah. That he t- yeah. That's <laughs> tremendous. Okay. And tremendous. tremendous. Everybody loved it for it. I mean, it was funny as hell oh. when, you, when you really think about the meaning of it. And everything. And I, I asked Pat later on about the jacket if i could have it or if i could buy it from him. he said i wish i still had that jacket he said uh <laughs> when he moved from uh from here to, to, to new york a lot of his stuff was stolen a lot of his jacket but, but pat was that's how intelligent pat was he was very topical and he would take it to subject matter like that and turn them into his use but anyway the bottom line of the story is mike graham here which i love and was a great performer but, uh, he, 
that uh, boss's uh, son. So Pat worked out this program with him, and uh, Pat started going over Mike with a figure four and, and wearing that jacket. And then he, you know, him, him, and, him and Garvin started being coming out a little bit. And so Eddie got really upset about it. He said, I'm not going to have my son losing to a, a move that I that I made popular here by a gay guy. So he fired Pat as a central booker. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's how. And I took his place. That's how I got my first job as, a, as an assistant Unbelievable. booker. Yeah. And but, uh, that's also around the same time that Hogan was breaking in, right? Because Hogan was thing. just breaking in. Uh, yeah. I remember taking uh, Hogan to Johnny Valentine. Mm-hmm. And all Johnny Valentine could do, you'll do good in New York. And I kept saying, Johnny, he's a local boy. We need him here. You know, let's use him here. <laughs> well, let's put him under a mask. Let's call him something. So we ended up sending him to, sending him to, uh, to Tennessee, yeah, Pensacola. I gave him a hundred dollar bill, and Jack bought a first pair of wrestling boots, and we sent him off. <laughs> and the by the way, he, by the way, uh, he did pay me back too. <laughs> <laughs> The reason I ask is because there's this film clip WWE's used a few times, like on the Legends Roundtable shows and some other places, that they had found in the Florida collection of Pat training Hogan to wrestle in the Sportatorium. So that's why my curiosity. There's a film clip in, from the old Eddie Graham library that WWE's used. I'll send it to you later. It should be on YouTube. If if not, I'll find the episode it's on on the network that they have this film clip of in the sportatorium Patterson and a couple other people like breaking Terry Balea in and yeah. like, his original training as a wrestler. And that's, that's what I, I was going to say. Yeah. It had to be during the break-in period because Pat, Pat didn't work with it. Cause Terry had fewer than a half dozen matches here and here in a, in a Tampa territory before we sent him up there. We saw what was going on with Terry and, uh, and when I, I, I got with Terry and I'm, it, it got so bad, David and John, that I would call Terry's house to give him a booking. And his mom would answer, he was living at home there, and his mom would answer the phone. And I'd tell his mom, now write this date down. And she knew me, and I, she always acted like she's my best friend. But she would never give Terry the dates. So Terry would miss shows where he was booked. And, he, of course, we'd get heat with Eddie and, 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 and Valentine. Why didn't this guy show up? I'd call Terry. I never got the message, brother. So this little uh, barmaid, this little girl attended bars that Barwell went to, was one of Terry's neighbors. So when I had booking for Terry, I, I would call up the little girl and have her give the date to Terry, and that way Terry would get the dates and he made all why the shows. Why, why did his mom not want him? His mom not want him wrestling. His mom was a wrestling fan, just like Terry was, and she believed all that stuff. She didn't want no buddy coat or great Malenko busting her boy <laughs> open. <laughs> so she was protecting Hulk Hogan. <laughs> she was protecting. She was protecting her baby boy. Yeah, <laughs> who's six eight, three hundred fifty yeah. pounds at the time. Exactly. It looked, it looked like a billion dollars in that time. But, uh, but that that that. that but that's when Pat left here after after Eddie uh, Eddie fired him. He stayed and he finished out his program. And him and Ivan Koloff were Florida Tag Team Champions, and they're a great team, as you can imagine. And Pat finished up, and I think that's when he went back to New York and stayed up there. David, does it bother you after reading all this stuff? Because it it bothers the heck out of me. 
that our government spent taxpayer money to go after somebody that was in our country legally. If Pat wasn't a citizen, but he was working here legally, broke no laws. Does it bother you uh, about that time in history and the people that went after him after reading all this stuff? Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't surprising because I knew this kind of thing happened. I mean, it, it was surprising to me that something like this would happen and no one in wrestling knew. That was the part that surprised me, yeah. that he had played it so close to the vest because you would you would think some people would have been privy to it just because of the, you know, the practicality of his, you know, his immigration status. Um, but I'm guessing that's probably as much as he told them. But yeah, it's it's very upsetting. And, you know, um, my friend Tim Burke, you know, who used to work for Deadspin and stuff, you know, he shared the article on Twitter earlier and he said, you know, it's a thing that a lot of people don't realize, but probably should be taught more that I mean, our government did this a lot in that era. And, you know, we're probably never going to know the full extent, but, you know, Lavender Scare still was thousands of people, like you said earlier. And, you know, who knows with stuff like this, especially because, you know, it could be on so many different levels. It doesn't just have to be the INS. It can be you know, think of how many people, again, would have been arrested just for going in gay bars or hanging out around an adult bookstore or whatever. Like, there's so much of that, you know? You, it, go ahead. Yeah, you, you you would never think that just going into a gay bar. And that's the reason Pat did go into him because I'm being watched. And Pat, who in hell are you being watched by? You wouldn't understand. You know, I do because of all this uh, the stuff that you brought out. But I just find it uh, amazing. I know you called me and, and you and I had a great conversation, but I'm sure you, you had a lot of other sources that you went to. Did anybody uh, in our business know that uh, about Pat being investigated or was it just completely? Just nobody, you, I, nobody that I talked to knew. I mean, you're the only one I talked to that kind of had those kind of moments of recognition of things that it was probably referring to. And I know, you know, I had told Meltzer about it early on when I was working on it. And I, it, you know, at least going by his tweet, you know, sharing the article earlier, I think he talked to some people and, you know, he said like Pat's closest friends in the business didn't know about this. So, I mean, you know, it's, I think, you know, is it, I, would I be curious if they were still around here, like Don Owen or Warshires, like recollections of what anything to do with Pat's visa or anything? To see if they knew anything, sure, but obviously we can't do that. And again, it's highly possible they didn't even know the specifics. Yeah, and and Don Owens, Roy Shire, all gave Pat uh, glowing recommendations later. Right. Uh, so whether they knew about it or not, maybe that was the reason they gave the recommendations because they were sticking up for Pat, which everybody who knew Pat stuck up for Pat. Uh, people, everybody loved Pat. So it'd be interesting to see if they knew the extent of what was going on, because if you have to think that Roy Shire, especially with the claiming the, the work violation would have known about it from the INS because surely they reached out to him, but it's amazing that this story hadn't gotten out. You know, our government at the time, you know, and it wasn't just the lavender scare. It was a red scare. And it was also going after civil rights leaders. You know, Dr. Yep. King was right. Perse- right. persecuted, absolutely persecuted by J. Mm. Edgar Hoover and its cronies. I mean, it's just, it's just an amazing time. And for you to bring this to light, uh, it, well done. Uh, this was a, yeah. a tremendous piece of work, really researched. How has the feedback been on your art? I know it just came out today, but how has the feedback been? It's been really good. I mean, this is not me tuning my own horn or anything because I don't usually get feedback like this. 
but like I've had like a bunch of people telling me they think it's maybe the best thing I've done, um, which is fl certainly flattering to hear. But yeah, it's all been really good. And, you know, it, I wanted to, you know, try to document this just because it's so insane and it's important that people know this kind of thing happened. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating on top of everything else. Well, David, thank you very much for, for both the article. You know, Pat was a really close friend of mine and even closer of Jerry's. You know, we, we, good grief, man. We just thought the world of Pat loved, loved Pat. Wish he was around today for, we can go sing him, hear him sing karaoke, karaoke and stay up one too many songs like he always does. How <laughs> 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 great was that, Jerry? Pat would get up there and sing, oh, Pat Patterson. What a wonderful it. world. <laughs> hey, finally, you're going, okay, that's enough, Pat. That, that's enough. Ah, <laughs> oh, one more. Just one uh, more. <laughs> but David, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on with us on short notice. So we appreciate it. And more importantly, thank you for the article, which I'll include in all the links of uh, the, the video that, that we put out. Thank you so much. I had a good time doing this. David, I, I, on my part, too, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate the, the phone call that, that you, you trusted me that, to, to share this and, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and I talk about talk about my dear friend, Pat Patterson. You know, one of, one, one of the most respected, if not the most respected man in, in, in our time, in our generation, in the business, you know. And uh, Pat was loved by all and respected by all. So thank you very much for your time today. And and good luck on on the future. And what what David David what what all you you got coming up that you want to you want to tell us? Um, let's see. I don't know if I have anything that specific that's still. Well, where still can where can they on. find you? Where can they find? I mean, you? They can find me on Twitter at David Bix. Um, the podcast between the sheets. They can find you know any place they look for most podcasts, but also between the sheets or Patreon is patreon.com slash between the sheets. That has bonus shows, of course, and uh, I also have a sub stack I'm trying to get more active with, and it's uh, babyfacevheal.com, and uh, people can check that out there. And actually, did this might actually interest you. Uh, I have something I put up there today that I happen to be working on in the last couple of weeks that I dug into everything I could find about the ratings from when WWF was on TBS for those eight months after you know you sold you and Jer and Jack sold your shares. You know, and and then organize the Georgia Green Green Saturday. Yeah, Green Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry is the only one that remembers that fondly. <laughs> but, you know, the narrative I feel like had kind of always been that it was kind of this instant flop. They got thousands of call negative calls, and you know, they, just that it was this complete disaster. But like I. I saw this one article that mentioned the ratings they were doing towards the end. I was like, that seems better than it should be. And I start looking and it's like, actually, yeah, the ratings dipped after a couple of months because they, uh, the shows were very similar to all the other shows, you know, whether on USA network, if they got channel nine here in New York on cable, because it was super station at the time, it was all the same stuff. But then because TBS gained like 3 million homes just in those eight months, between that and because also WWF was a lot stronger by the beginning of 85 than they were in like fall of 84. They built it up to where they were hitting like up to that point, like the PTBS wrestling audiences. Wow. So it, it some of the narrative is true, 
but it's much more complicated, I think, than people right. realize. So the entire deal was. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because I, I, the thing that I always find, I think, maybe most fascinating that people, I think, don't realize is, you know, so, okay, so wait, it was you, Jack, uh, Barnett's investor, Jim Oates, was his name, right? Jim Oates, uh, Chicago. Paul Jones, and was there, was that all Paul, the shareholders? This whole yeah, yeah, Paul Jones was the key to the entire, entire sell. He really was. I right. mean, uh, even with, with, with uh, Oates and, and Barnett and, and Jack and myself, we didn't have enough votes. The, the big, the big, the big stack of votes was over there with Paul Jones and his wife. And, uh, Paul Jones, as you know, was was an amateur wrestler, and we had that closeness with Paul, that relationship with, with Paul, that was able to uh, for us to uh, to convince him that he was doing the right thing. So, but um, what Paul I was, was saying, oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, Paul was a key to it. Uh, what I was saying though is, um, it, it, the part that doesn't always get talked about that much is uh, the sale actually went through three months before Vince took over the TV. It, the reason it didn't happen was that then Oli sued all of you to try to block the sale. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, yeah. As soon as we walked out of that, uh, that lawyers uh, closing on one, we were served with papers from Oli on the other side. Of the hall. <laughs> but uh, the whole thing, you know, it was remarkable. It never got out. You know, and for those days, not, you know, something no. in the wrestling business getting out, you know, even during our negotiation as trying to set up the sale. I mean, nobody knew what we were doing because we went to the Crockett first. The very first people we went to were NWA people. And every one of them called Oli for reference on the numbers. <laughs> and Oli lied to every damn one of them. And and we were we would come back. Oli says you guys are overpricing your stock. Okay, Oli says that we're overpricing. Too bad. Next, we went to the next guy, <laughs> and we kept going to the next until we found him. <laughs> wow, I did not know that part of it. So, who else did you go to besides Crockett? Uh, we went to Crockett. Went to Eddie Graham. We went to uh, Barnett. Uh, Barnett and I and and I talked because he he. He thought he had a group of people with Jim Oates that would that would take it over, and, mm -hmm. and that fell through. We went to the Mernicks who worked for Jim Crockett because they were wanting to expand their business and grow their business. The only way they could was gain control of the territory. They weren't going to gain control of Jim Crockett promotion. So they knew that. They figured if they bought in there. We were real close with the Mernicks, that, that, that close with the Mernicks. Piper is a one that got us that close to closing with the Murdochs. Uh, probably, uh, probably another week we would have had that deal, but we had luck at it. Piper got hurt. We called Vince. Vince talked us into coming up to New York and meeting with him, and that's the end of the story. You know, there were, right. there were, there were, no, there were no issues or, or issues to, to battle at that time with him, like there was with all the NWA people. We did, we did our due diligence on all these guys. And we knew it would get back to uh, Oli. We went to Bill Watts. Bill, I, I don't, I don't, I got, I got, I got my temper set. That's all I want. I got my own territory. You know, he had uh, 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 Louisiana popping at the time, so he he didn't want any part of it. So they all, they all, we went, we went to just about everybody. We didn't go to Harley. We didn't go to that crew because we didn't figure they they had the 
the the uh, the financial means or or the uh, metal means to to keep that thing going. And we were working with Turner. Tur- Turner was aware of. He was the only guy outsider that was aware of the entire deal. Wow, that's really what something. Did- and what did Ole want out of it by blocking the deal? Did he just want a job? Did he want to? He just wanted to keep a- his job. He just wanted to keep his job. I mean, he he had he, what a gold mine he had, and it was all all Barnett's doing. I mean, he had the, the way way Ole and Ole is a brilliant guy. I got to give Ole credit due, man. He was he brilliant setting up his 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 structure, his pay structure in that territory because we had, we had we had just discovered. Cable TV was everywhere, and we could run the Ohio's. And we, we would only go to territories like everybody. Why did you just go to Michigan, Ohio, and West Virginia? That's where the old Sheik went, and Sheik had burned that place to the ground. And nobody, no wrestling, no buildings, or radio station, or TV stations would work with with any other wrestling promotion. That's the reason those areas were dead like that. Well, TBS comes in on cable, and all of a sudden, Dayton. Columbus, Cleveland, Detroit, Lansing, Grand Rapids, all these places were opening up to TV. So we didn't need that local TV promotion anymore. So we just followed our cable system. I get a book about this thick every week that gave me every breakdown, every little burb and ever ever cable subscription in the entire United States, North America. And I would just follow that book to promote our towns and and and, and that wherever. Our subscription uh, was the highest, of course, is where we ran shows if they had a building big enough to run us there. So it, it, was, it, it was a wild time, but we, we, we felt that we did everything that we could to keep the territory in the NWA, but but from within inside, it was destroyed every, every time from inside, and that's it. So, so Jerry, you were actually part of the group that sold to Vince McMahon, and then you were part of Vince McMahon when you bought that back. <laughs> yeah, of course. You're uh, on both sides. You're on both sides. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> and I got drunk to hell on both of them. <laughs> One part I never understood, though, was how he was able to sell the time slots to Crockett because he didn't sell him Georgia Championship Wrestling. He sold like, the that, time slots. But how was he even able to do that? Like, was that in the contract? Like, was that a thing yeah, yeah, that exactly. could have done previously? Okay. That's basically what we sold him was was their time slot, right? We 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 didn't tell we didn't sell him you know like three trucks and a, and five rings. <laughs> we sold him the time slots on WTBS. That's the reason we had like I said we had Turner involved because we had Turner. We had to ask Turner, hey, if we make this deal, because we had to give Vince some sort of guarantee because he's a smart businessman. Hey, I buy that Turner jerks this time time slot out on me. You know what? A, what have I bought? You know. Right. Three letters. So, uh, so uh, we had to assure him that that, that uh, Turner was along with along for the ride, but he didn't stay along for the ride. But he started out being on on the wagon. So, what's your understanding? Because the thing that like was reported in electronic media at the time as for why it really went bad was that the contract allotted for promotional time. Vince interpreted that as meaning he could resell them as network ads. TBS was saying that only meant to promote house shows and stuff. And it bet it kind of went bad from there. Is that your understanding or like, what is your understanding of why it went bad? That, that, that is my understanding of that. And 
the reason it went bad is because, like you said, of the programming. And, and Vance was wise enough, like, and they didn't trust Turner at all. So he was wise enough. And if you recall, uh, you know, he started expanding those shows on USA Network and all that stuff. I think we started doubling, doubling the shows. But he started expanding, expanding that show and building that show where if something did happen, that he wouldn't, he didn't have to rely on TBS. That you know he had built his own brand up on his own 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 USA Network, uh, where where he would he wouldn't need uh, TBS anymore. And that's basically what happened. So when when he went when he went back to Crockett, as soon as Vance bought, of course, Jimmy Crockett called me and said, "Why didn't you sell to me?" <laughs> Jimmy, you had the opportunity. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know. And we say there, you talk about an uncomfortable feeling because there was there was some some genuine heat there when when we made that sell. But we we had we had the, the world tag team titles at the time, Jack and I did them. We stayed there and dropped in the Wahoo and Mark Youngblood, and uh, just just to get out of Dodge, just so to say. Was it only that put the bounty on you? Yeah, only supposedly, and this comes from another deceased guy, Paul Jones, uh, uh, the original Mister Waterfall down there, who's a very dear friend of mine. He he happened to call Jack one day and said. Jack, he said, I'm going to tell you, be very careful where you go and don't make sure when you go, you're around a lot of people. He said, the word here is only put out a, a hit on you. Jack said, why did Jack start <laughs> laughing? Oh, what? You know, like he called the body shop even. And, and, and they said, yeah, he, he supposedly would hire a hitman. You got three days. So at the end of three <laughs> days, we called Paul Jones and drank a, drank a bottle of, uh, of, uh, of uh, whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, did, didn't you tell me one time the Road Warriors smartened you up that they had been asked? Well, the Road Warrior. Well, that was in the ring. This was actual to take us out. I so only had only had allegedly put a hit out. Allegedly, and also, and also tried to hire the Road Warriors to to hurt and you. Guys. Animal Animal came up to me, and uh, we were in Cleveland, Ohio, and we were finishing up our, our booking. And we we're professionals about those things. That's where that upsets me. You know, they, 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 you know, we finished our booking. You know, it was a rumor. Somebody beat the shit out. Well, come on, you know, try. You know, I'm not bragging or anything, but that was our least fear. You know, somebody going to hurt us. So we're in, and the old Cleveland Auditorium. It's all at the auditorium. There's a big curtain behind the. The main curtain, an animal comes out, and Helm and uh, Helm and, uh, Helm and the Hawk come out and say, "Come here, we want to talk to you guys." Well, we were working with them. We thought they wanted to go or something different, a little different in the match. And we walked back there. The guy, I'm going to tell you, he, he said, "I'll probably get fired if, if if you let this out." He said, "But I want to tell you," he said, "Only put the money out on allegedly." Uh, he didn't say allegedly, but he said they some bent some money put out on anybody that could break your arm or break your leg. And said we were offered the money tonight. We told them to go up themselves. You guys have done too much for us. They helped us out too much in our careers, and you you guys mean too much uh, for us. Then I went to Tommy Rich, and Tommy Rich nodded his head. Yeah, it's true. And uh, what I found out, Buzz Sawyer was the only one that would take it up. Of course, we were. Conveniently not booked a bus all your the entire run. So. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. We got a little, little. We got a little bonus on here with David. Didn't, <laughs> didn't expect all that. That's terrific. Tremendous. Yes. Thank you. Well, so that's much a, the that. bonus section, man. <laughs> you dang right. The whole thing's a bonus, Gary. You, David, thanks bonus. so much. Yeah, hey, thank you. Are, you. 
I apologize for derailing the sign off. Like no, that. no, no, no. <laughs> hey, that's great stuff. If we had to talk about Jerry's 75 cent haircut, that would really be a bonus stuff. But we aren't going to tell anybody that he paid some barber student 75 cents plus a 25 cent tip. A I, I paid him a dollar. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. 